Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio, um, which is brought to you by FreeCR 855 AM on your dial. So this morning, um, where we're located in 3CR is on Wurundjeri Wurrung land, and we would like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners, caretakers and custodians of the land. The land was taken by brute force and sovereignty was never, ever ceded. We join in solidarity with the First Nations people's struggle for justice. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. All right, thank you for that, um, Sue. So um, you're joined today, um, your presenters today are myself, Jacob Andwafa, and... Um, Sue Bolton. And um, we have quite a good, um, we actually have quite a good program um, lined up for listeners um, today, um, where we're actually covering quite a, a diverse kind of range of topics. And um, just to give a bit of a rundown on what we have coming up, we're going to be speaking to regular Green Left writer and actually guest on um, Free, um, Free CR, Alex Bainbridge, to talk. You know, he was at the Pro, um, at the um, the series of protests that happened outside the ALP conference, and we're going to be basically having a bit of discussion with him about you know some of the takeaways and a bit of a I guess a left wing kind of response to um, to the ALP national conference, which took place in Brisbane on the weekend of August eighteenth um, to the twentieth. And then we'll be speaking to Suresh Kumar Ralif, um, who is a member of the Indian community who has been, who's been very much active in, um, in, in, in sort of, in sort of left, in left wing kind of politics to kind of give a bit of a, um, to give a bit of a, have a bit of discussion about actually what, what is actually really happening in Manipur right now, which has, um, been, you know, which has been a, a, a big kind of, a big important kind of discussion for Indian politics. And we'll be finding out a bit more about that. Um, and then we'll also be speaking to Emily Sims from Prosper Australia to um, discuss the housing crisis and this whole debate that's happening right now, um, which is about this question of housing supply. And in fact, we've been we've been discussing that topic uh, in recent weeks. And um, Emily Sims, has actually, um, as part of Prosper Australia, has actually done quite a lot of research on this sort of question. So we'll be having a bit of more discussion on that. But first, I guess I want to sort of, I want to start a discussion on a bit of, um, you know, we usually like starting the program with a bit of uh, discussion of some headline news stories. Um, so probably one news story that kind of stood out to me this week was um, Coles has basically, Coles, everyone knows who um, what Coles is, um, one of the big sort of supermarket, um, big supermarkets, part of the big two <laughs> um, with um, Woolworths and Coles, and Quite interestingly, and and also quite a lot to sort of kind of get outraged, 
whilst we're, uh, we are living in a cost of living crisis, um, Coles has actually you know, posted and uh, a $1.1 billion profit um, surge um, and, of course, a 4.8% rise in full and a full year of annual profit. And, of course, this is a missed um, a number of things. Um, the fact that there's been a grocery price surge and there's also been a cost of living crisis. Um, but, yeah, I'll go, I want to... Um, um, Sue, do you want to sort of start off with some comments on this uh, particular kind of news story? Well, I think this is... Absolutely outrageous, and it's happening right across the economy. So while the Reserve Bank is slamming working class people with interest rate hikes, um, big corporations, Coles, Woolies, Qantas, the electricity companies, gas companies, etc., and many others are able to just slam people with massive price rises. And this, um, you know, what we've got is profit-induced inflation. So there's no other reason for the price rises other than inflation. And so a lot of the prices have been going up well above inflation and coals and woolies, um, but also some... Uh, fruit and veggies which did have gone down in price it's the reason they've gone down in price is because the previous year um, they went up so massively in price because of the floods in northern new south wales and so um what they've what uh some fruit and veggies have come down to is um way above what they would have been if it wasn't for those floods in New South Wales. So basically we've got, you know, massive escalation of prices in in the supermarket. And this is, you know, going to the supermarket to go shopping for food and other essentials is now a massive stress on numerous people throughout the economy, people who are struggling to pay their bills. Hmm. And one thing I kind of want to add, and this is just drawing on um, some of the port, and this is how it's been kind of reported in the kind of media. But one interesting kind of contradiction as well is, um, despite the fact that Coles has kind of reported these massive kind of profits, um, this actually hasn't internally within um, within Coles. This actually has not met uh, shareholder ex- expectations, and in fact, Coles shares have fall, fallen more than five percent um, after investors kind of reacted to the um, um, the results. Now, one of the interesting sort of factors for this is um, basically Coles has also kind of reported. Um, a twenty um, a twenty percent um, increase in stock losses due to rising organised retail crime and customer theft tied to cost of living um, pressures, and of course this is I think Ray I, I think the fact that you have media just sort of parrot um, parroting this fact um, uncritically like there's actually obvious reasons why if people if working class people are in a cost of living crisis you know why they would why it would actually be quite an obvious fact um, 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 that shop, um, um, rates of shoplifting would actually increase. But, of course, from the perspective of these capitalists, all they see is, oh, well, this is just lost profits. 
And, of course, what Coles has sort of done in response, and, of course, this is actually part of a long-term sort of trend, um, they're basically trying to um, invest more in, um, in, um, in, in increased security at, at self-checkouts. Um, and, of course, they're also implementing things such as camera and AI technology to ensure that items are kind of correctly scanned. But, of course, one of the contradictions that has to be pointed out about this is when... Coles and Woolworths have been implementing this sort of self-checkout um, system, you know, that's all being driven by the fact that they actually wanted to reduce labour costs and actually um, create more profit from themselves. And I think it actually, you know, it very much, you know, when you look at the, the actions of, of corporations like Coles and Woolworths, it really sort of... Um, it really sort of challenges challenges this idea that because um, you know most capitalist governments will have this sort of perspective that oh yes well the more profit that these corporations make make the better for, for for people because it means that you know they are going to invest more and create more jobs etc well actually Coles and Woolworths from all the profits that they're making they're actually trying to reduce the amount of jobs and the amount of workers that they employ. Well, there's also something else, and that is that the government doesn't have to just watch and allow these supermarket chains to increase the cost of food the way it is. Um, in the 70s or 80s, I can't quite remember exactly when it happened, <coughs> the um, Builders Labourers Federation, which is nowadays part of the CFMEU, organised a protest outside one of the big supermarkets over the escalating uh, inflation of food items. And the government could quite easily implement price controls over supermarkets to stop them profiteering out of a basic, which is food. We all need food, um, and the company should simply not be profiteering out of them, uh, out of, um, you know, using, um, trying to jack up the cost of Food. So, you know, the price of bread, like bread is a staple and loaves of bread in the supermarkets are around five bucks now or even starting to go over five bucks. So, you know, this is, um, this is, you know, just one example of, of the price inflation that people are suffering from. But of course, the government doesn't want you to think that anything can be done about the inflation, inflationary cost of food. They want you to think this is an act of God that they can't do anything about. But actually, there is a lot they could do about it. They could in- introduce price controls on, f- on basic grocery items. And something also to sort of add is really, I mean, I think it has to be kind of condemned the kind of extent by which... Um, um, the extent by which companies like Coles and Woolworths attempt to squeeze as much profit as possible um, from consumers, because at the end of the day, um, you know, Coles and Woolworths are actually providing um, necessities to ordinary people. Like when it comes to this sort of question of kind of demand, you know, demand they always get. A, there's always going to be a high level demand for what Coles and Woolworths are selling, and you know, they um, and in, in, in a sense. Um, the fact that they're engaging in activities such as price gouging, increasing the prices well above inflation, but there's also other um, things that the, that Coles and Woolworths are doing to sort of um, make massive profits. So, for example, uh, there's like um, there've been there's been kind of like examples of um, Coles and Woolworths um, 
you know, they have a, they have a product and they create, um, they make the portion smaller, but then charge the same price for, for that, for that particular profit, um, um, product. Um, and of course they're also, you know, they're also attempting, they're also like, another thing is the fact is they're also taking an advantage of the fact that there is limited kind of competition. Um, and so you, they're essentially using their market power to basically increase prices to be higher than, um, than necessary. And in fact, what's interesting, and this was, um, recently sort of, um, covered in an article that, ha- um, that was published last month in The Guardian. What's interesting is when Coles and Woolworths are actually in, are actually denying publicly that they're directly prof- profiting off, off that, such behavior. And they're actually trying to make this argument, um, which goes back to the earlier sort of point I sort of made, they're trying to make this argument that improve, it's improved productivity that have led to bigger profits. And of course, they're citing things like faster checkouts and distribution center improvements. Um, and I think, you know, that's, um, and I think, you know, the fact that I think you're completely right, Sue, the fact that they, you know, companies like corporations like Coles and Woolworths, they need to be very much reined in. Um, and I think, you know, price controls is absolutely something that, you know, we should, um, we should be putting, um, supporting. And actually the other thing, which is also, uh, one of the ways in which Coles and Woolies have been profiteering is they're massively expanding their self-serve. Um, the only reason we have checkouts at all, as in people checkouts, staff checkouts, is because People have to prove that they're over 18 in order to get cigarettes. Um, that if it wasn't for that, Coles and Woolies would have got rid of all um, staff checkouts and would be forcing everyone into self-serve. And whenever I go into Coles or Woolies or any of the supermarkets, I often hear workers talking to each other about the latest injustice that's been reaped on them by Coles. Coles in particular and Woolies are very much pressurising workers and so workers are constantly stressed out from understaffing and overwork. So that's the other element of how they're extracting every last ounce of profit out of workers as well as out of consumers. So, you know, really our, you know, we really should unite. They're, in fact, the workers in Coles and Woolies need a much better union, a stronger union, more militant union. Um, and, uh, yeah, so anyway, I just think we, but we also need to demand the government does something, not just uh, be angry about it. We actually need to demand that the government actually implements price controls over supermarket products. All right. Um, thank you very much for that, Sue. I'm just going to go play a quick few announcements and we'll actually move on to our first interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter.
Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we are joined today by Alex Bainbridge, um, who is a member of Socialist Alliance and is also uh, an, a Green Left activist journalist. And as I sort of announced before, um, Alex um, was actually part of attending a series of protests that took place outside the ALP National Conference um, last weekend and in Brisbane. And in fact, if you look on greenleft.org.au, you can actually get a lot of coverage that um, you can see a lot of coverage that Alex Bainbridge has done on the ALP uh, National Conference, especially in especially in sense of the protests. And Alex also. Which, and this is sort of the subject of the interview. Um, Alex also wrote a bit of an analysis piece for Green Left, um, titled Labor Fails on AUKUS Housing and Taxation. Um, and so we're going to be having a bit of a political discussion about, you know, some of the implications of the ALP National Conference and, you know, what, why they've ultimately, you know, failed to really offer anything to ordinary working people. Um, so good morning, Alex. Good morning, Jacob. Um, so Alex, I, I kind of want to, um, I guess I want to start hearing your sort of thoughts on on this because um, you opened this sort of article basically by quoting um, Anthony Albanese, and he this has been sort of one of the main kind of takeaway messages that he's uh, that he's um, given as part uh, in the ALP's 49th National Conference, and he basically Anthony Albanese basically said we are not in the Labor Party for mere gestures, and he. He basically made this argument that long-term government is essentially counterposed to protest, and you know he very much dangled this sort of notion of longevity um, in government as a as a, like a payoff for all the the support for Labor's kind of repressive sort of policies. And I guess I want to hear some of your takes and your analysis on you know how how very much how outrageous this sort of message um, that the ALP is very much trying to present. Yeah, well, thanks, Jacob. I, look, I, I don't think it's a. I don't. I don't disagree with Albanese that long-term government is is better than short-term government if you've got a progressive agenda that you're trying to implement. I think the problem with what Albanese was saying is that he's more or less saying to both the rank and file of the Labor Party and also the broader public that are watching, watching on. He's saying you've got to put up with this um, centrism and moderate policies or even conservative policies. There is no other option if you want us to be in, in power for a long time. And I think there's two things that are wrong with that. First is, well, it's false. <laughs> like, Labor would actually have a, a better chance of building up a popular support base if they actually implemented policies that were in the interest of ordinary people. And secondly, it's, uh, that is an, that is an unfair bargain, um, to, to make people, you know, to, to, to sort of try and uh, force on people. Um, the, the policies that are being implemented right now, uh, like the state's fee tax cuts and like the Orca submarine, hundreds of billions of dollars that ordinary taxpayers are going to pay for. Um, and, you know, in the midst of a climate crisis and a housing crisis, Labor is not doing anything, not even remotely enough to deal with. So, like, in terms of the urgent, immediate needs of ordinary people, um, in that sense, Albanese is, fa- is failing people and he's making excuses, which on the surface might seem plausible, but when you scrutinise them, they don't turn up to scrutiny. Actually, one of the things that I noticed, Alex, it's Sue here, um, is that there was quite a lot of criticism about the Labor Party 
and especially actually the socialist left faction, which Albanese comes from, um, really trying to crack down on debate and people being able to put things forward. And then I also noticed that the CFMEU's proposal for a super tax um, or on uh, super tax on profits um, was watered down quite considerably in um, the conference. So do you want to just maybe um, say a little bit about how the... Um, you know, how the Labor Party managed to, you know, dampen down criticism from any any sort of left criticism inter- internally in the conference. Yeah, look, I, I wasn't able to be in the conference myself, so any comments that I can make are just based on <laughs> reports I've heard um, from others. But, I mean, I think I think you're right. I mean, the CFMU went into the conference with a, you know, basically a good proposal for a super profits tax uh, which are going to, you know, suggesting be used to fund public housing, 50,000 or more public houses per year, which is a long way ahead of, of what Albanese is proposing. Um, you know, it may or may not have been enough, but it certainly was, like, it definitely was a bloody good start. Um, and, and that, um, you know, that, that proposal was, you know, was kind of passed, but in an amended way, so it was so watered down that more or less came to a, you know, Congratulations on the government, and we and we'd like a little bit of um, reconsideration of you know uh, you know uh, I can't remember the exact words, but like you know um, you know reconsidering um, company tax reform. So I mean, like <laughs> that's obviously a motion that puts zero pressure on the government, whereas a motion that if it had passed, calling for a super office tax on, you know, with the specifics that the CFMU originally moved, like you know businesses over 100 million dollars a year and and so forth. Um, that would have, you know, obviously Labor Party, Labor government is not bound by the by the party conference decision, but that would have been a lot more pressure on the government. So, I mean, I, I think there's kind of two sides to it. On the one side, yeah, of course, the Labor Party leadership is very keen to not have those kinds of, you know, that kind of pressure coming from the conference. So, the Labor Party leadership manoeuvred um, very strongly to try and. You know, watered down those sort of oppositions, and similarly, there was a um, there was a debate on on AUKUS, but um, and, and all the reports are that it was it was a voice vote only, and all the reports are that there was a either somewhere from a significant minority or else equally equally loud opposition to AUKUS as, as support for it. Um, but there was a factional deal made to not count the vote, so nobody knows. Um, how much, you know, what, how much, what level of opposition, if it, if it had come to a vote, still had to sort of indicate their, their position one way or the other. Nobody knows what, you know, what that would have been. So, uh, of course the leadership is going to manoeuvre to try and reduce that kind of pressure on the government. Um, and, you know, fair enough, good on the people that had a go and sort of tried to express their opposition in the other conference in some way. But I think also you've got to say it is a little bit weak of the opposition not to have pressed those issues, not to have, not to have, uh, not a, not a single delegate called for a vote on the on the on the AUKUS numbers. Um, in my mind, if you are inside the Labor Party and wanting to try and get some improvements from the Labor Party, okay, I mean that's not that's not the approach that I've taken to activism. But I mean, if you if you have taken that approach, I, I think you still have to realise the Labor Party's leadership is not your friends. The Labor Party leadership is is a capitalist government trying to run um, 
run the government in the interests of the big businesses in the town. Um, you can't you can't win against that leadership without being prepared to actually fight them, and that means uh, I think um, you know stronger action than what was than what the what the Labor Party left was prepared to um, to do in this conference. Hmm. And I guess I want to kind of uh, um, I, I mean I want you to kind of broadly kind of comment on really you know. Basically, expand a bit on this sort of Labor sort of notion of long-term government, like kind of commenting on what is actually the kind of Labor Party actually offering. And also, you know, the other thing as well is AUKUS was obviously a kind of big sort of issue um, um, at this sort of conference. And in fact, what is sort of what is sort of notable is probably AUKUS is by far one of the kind of policies that there's clearly the most clear sort of left... ALP sort of left opposition to it. Uh, in fact, there's been a number of branches who have passed motions opposing AUKUS, and there is at least sort of one politician um, in the ALP who's sort of opposed to AUKUS, but of course not necessarily for the reasons um, that we would ne- um, kind of agree with. Um, and I kind of want to hear you sort of comment a bit more on um, Labor's sort of, um, you know, how Labor really projected AUKUS at this conference. And also, you know, another comment as well is, um, another thing to um, comment on as well is, you know, the fact that in the media, the way it was sort of reported is it's quite interesting because basically uh, Peter Dutton sort of got on the on the sort of megaphone and basically, not the megaphone literally, but um, in the media, he was basically sort of saying, well, in res- responding to sort of the opposition to AUKUS, he sort of tried to make this sort of argument, well, I can't believe that it, the ALP would be divided on this sort of question of national kind of security. Um, so I want to hear some of your comments on some of the on on that those some of those points related to AUKUS. Yeah, I mean, on the question you raised about long-term government, I mean, I think I, I think it's pretty clear, more or less, how easy is saying we want long-term government for the sake of long-term government, and like uh, Laura Tingle wrote an article about AUKUS, but no, like more or less saying like you know calling it an empty vessel, like just basically there's no kind of substance to this. Is like just a, you know we want long-term government for the sake of long-term government. And that is actually a betrayal of working class interests, to sort of put it in that sort of way. Um, you know, keeping, uh, there's no point keeping the Liberals out of government just to create the conditions in which the Liberals are going to get back in, in a, in a stronger form next time. Um, now, on the question of AUKUS specifically, um, yeah, I think there's, I think, it, I think there's, it's definitely true there's a lot of opposition inside Labor to AUKUS and, you know, for a mix of reasons, um, some, you know, there is there is a certain sort of pro-imperialist, pro-capitalist case against AUKUS, but there's also, you know, I think there are unionists that are very genuinely saying, why are we spending this money on, you know, nuclear submarines when there's, you know, housing need, climate need, um, you know, jobs need. I mean, like, there's a whole lot of things that that money could be better spent on, and also, you know, legitimate criticisms about the the nuclear waste. The government's got no um answer for uh they're just you know hoping it'll go away um and and other other you know good criticisms as well so i think i think there's a lot of good reasons to to uh, you know see actually that there are people inside the labor party that are more or less allies in in a good campaign to to stop um to stop this orca steel from from eventuating and um you know, look, <laughs> I mean, Peter Dutton's going to say what Peter Dutton's going to say. I mean, to be honest, I don't know that 
on our side of politics need to pay that much attention to it. I, mean, I think the real thing is that, you know, this whole argument, I mean, the ruling class media and politicians always try and create on national security as some, oh, it's just some sacrosanct thing that you can't question and is, is important above all else. Well, it's not important above all else. Um, and, you know, also you've got to have a, you've got to have a, you know, a, a realistic, um, question about, well, what does national security mean? When Peter Dutton and Anthony Albanese talk about AUKUS and national security, what they're talking about is a war drive against China. That would be a complete disaster for ordinary people in Australia, not to mention ordinary people in China and the whole world. Um, you know, so that's what they're talking about. We need to be 100% opposed to uh, a war on China and all the little incremental stepping, stone, uh, stepping stones towards that. Um, on the other hand, you know, I mean, national security isn't the way I'd personally want to frame it, but if you do want to talk about national security as such, climate crisis, climate catastrophe, climate breakdown is a much bigger threat to the security of ordinary people in this country and, and the whole world than any risk of, you know, uh, war from China or, frankly, anyone else. So if you actually do care about the security and welfare of people in this country, um, then... The government should be, you know, stopping, um, you know, stopping all the new fossil fuel developments, um, including you know, the gas hub and whatever else in um, Western Australia, Beetaloo, um, and using the money, hundreds of billions of dollars, and, and it will, you know, it will no doubt become more than the three hundred and sixty-eight billion dollars currently being touted uh, by the end of August. It'll be, it will be you know, close to, if not over a trillion dollars by the time we get to the end of it. Um, that money should be spent on a climate transition, renewable energy, uh, jobs for uh, a transition plan, a just transition plan for for affected communities. Um, that's what that money should be spent on. And if you were truly concerned about the security and welfare of ordinary people, that's what you would do. And the fact that they're talking about, you know, Peter Dutton and, and the, the media and so forth are talking about national security and linking it to AUKUS, well, it's, it's a it's a complete lie because AUKUS is against the actual security and welfare of ordinary people in Australia. Well, just one thing, Alex, um, it strikes me with the conference, is the, uh, the only area where there was significant challenge to the Labor Party's big business policies was around AUKUS, Whereas it seems that on so many other issues, social and environmental issues, the government has unfortunately been fairly successful, with, especially within the Labor Party, at dampening down expectations so much um, to think that we can't do anything more than the bare basics of incremental change. And we saw that with the Climate Safeguards Bill, which you wrote extensively on and demonstrated that actually the bill was worse than useless and only saved fractionally by some of the um, amendments by the Greens. Um, We've also talked on this program about... Um, the ha- housing bill of the governments, which is also similar, you know, worse than useless, um, you know, as just a you know investment kind of um, thing rather than directly building public housing. But also on the issue of refugees, I noticed that the um, 
You know, the government's said at the conference that they'll lift the refugee intake or humanitarian intake um, to 20,000. Now, the actual policy going into the elections was 27,000. But it seems to me that maybe even Labor for Refugees has almost given up on really fighting for justice. Um, they reiterated that they will give permanent protection to people on temporary protection visas and CHEV visas. But meanwhile, all of these refugees have, be, have been left out in the cold, the people on Nauru, the people on, in PNG that the um, Labor Party and the Australian government has abandoned, but these 12,000 refugees who are on bridging visas who were medevaced here from Australia, um, not able to... The government has basically adopted the coalition policy of abandoning, saying you will never, ever, 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 ever get resettled in Australia. You have to go to another country. And um, I noticed a welcoming... Um, a welcoming uh, or congratulatory message from Asylum Seekers Resource Centre and some other refugee advocacy groups, not so much the activist wing of the movement, um, congratulating them um, for the lift in um, the number of humanitarian places without drawing attention to the fact they're not resolving the situation for so many refugees. So, yeah, just if you might want to make any comments on any of that. Yeah, look, I mean, to be honest, I haven't paid a lot of attention to the refugee um, content of the conference. Um, but I think that I think that the issue of refugees in Australian politics, like, I feel like you're looking, taking a long-term look over the last 22 years since the um, uh, John Howard first sort of manufactured this, this tamper affair as, a, as an attempt at a wedge against labour, a successful wedge against labour. And all of politics in Australia has shifted to the right because the Labor Party essentially capitulated and abandoned any uh, opposition to the anti-refugee policies that that, that the that the Liberals kind of foisted on on us. Um, I mean, obviously Labor's got some, some responsibility because they before that they introduced mandatory detention. But you know, but I think I think the I think John Howard and Tampa was a big step up on the attack on refugees and. Um, and in the time of the sort of Julia Gillard, Julia Gillard and um, Kevin Rudd era of government, um, you know, after initially uh, when there were many refugees coming, they sort of had a better policy for a, for a short time, um, but then, you know, completely capitulated in what you know Labor Party might people present as clever politics, but. In my view, for progressive politics is actually about winning support among the public for progressive change. So, Labor Party might think it's clever. Oh well, we neutralised this issue by by just accommodating to a, a draconian policy against refugees. Well, the problem with that is that that helps to shift all of politics to the right. And you know, on every issue, housing, climate, everything, we're, we're all worse off because you can't. You can't you can't throw some people under the bus and then expect that um, <laughs> expect that you're going to have like a progressive agenda. Now, in terms of the Labor Party leadership, they don't want to have a progressive agenda. They basically want to manage capitalism in the interest of big business and, sure, maybe maybe you know bring about some reforms with, within that context. 
Um, but their loyalty to big business is, is the priority. That's, that's the leadership of the Labor Party. And we saw the Hawke and Keating governments bring in a whole platform of neoliberalism, um, introducing neoliberalism into Australia, um, you know, in, that, in furtherance of that aim. And pretty much every Labor government since then has continued down that same neoliberal path and looking after big business interests against workers, ordinary working people, um, while mouthing platitudes to the opposite. And that's my view. That's why I look at it. And I think that, I think that, yeah, I mean, um, refugees have been thrown under the bus. Yes, there has, there is some improvement compared to what Peter Dutton was going to, you know, was doing when, when they were in government last. Um, but it's not enough and they're still leaving people under the bus. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's emblematic of, of Labor's whole approach, which is which is not to argue a progressive case. And I, I guess, I mean, I, I always uh, think of, I mean, not that I remember it, but having heard the example of um, of, of Doc Ebert, a, a Labor Party leader in decades past, uh, when the Menzies government tried to ban the Communist Party, outlaw the Communist Party, um, Doc Ebert, as a senior Labor Party leader, waged a campaign. I mean, Menzies' initial proposal had popular support, the same as Howard's Tampa policy had popular support at the beginning. And Doc Everett turned the public opinion around and made it impossible for Menzies to ban the, the, the Communist Party. Now, that kind of political campaigning from a Labor Party figure, like actually campaigning to win popular support for an opposition to the, to the coalition idea, you haven't seen that for such a long time. Um, and, yeah, we turned around the popular opinion to Howard's opposition to Tampa, but that was the refugee rights movement that did that. Not there was no kind of Doc Everett um, equivalent figure in the Labor Party leadership who was arguing that case. Some Labor Party people were supporting that campaign in the first in the first phase of the refugee rights campaign. Um, but then, since since the Rudd and Gillard governments, um, there hasn't really been anyone in Labor prepared to speak up against the big issues, which is boat turnbacks and mandatory detention. And that's when we, that's when we'll know that we've actually won the refugee rights campaign when those policies are overturned. And I think that the failures on bridging visas and whatever else, I mean, well, obviously there's been some improvements, but it's not, but not enough. And there, there are people who are being failed. That's a, that's a side effect. That's a symptom of the fact that we haven't won on the big questions, which is boat turnbacks and mandatory detention. Well, um, Alex, we're running a bit out of time now, but I guess, um, do you want to make any sort of concluding final comments? Look, I think that it's important that, um, you know, we work with Labor Party people when, um, when there is agreement. I think the fact that there is so much opposition in AUKUS means that that is a, that is a tremendous opportunity for, for building hopefully a stronger and hopefully a winning campaign on this issue. Um, but my feeling is that in the end, um, we need to build a political force to the left of Labor Party if we're going to win because Labor Party on all of the main issues has proving themselves to be not good enough, not up to what, not up to scratch at what people need. So I say build a, build a left opposition to the Labor Party if you want to actually see progressive change. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Alex Bainbridge. I think this has been a very important kind of discussion. And just a reminder to our listeners, um, you can look at all the coverage um, that um, that Alex Bainbridge has done of 
the protest outside the ALP National Conference on greenleft.org.au and you can also read his feature article for Green Left, which is Labor Fails on AUKUS Housing and, uh, and the Environment. So, yeah, thank you very much, Alex, for being on our program. Thanks, Jacob, and see you. Thanks, Alex. All right. Um, so we're just um, doing an interview with Alex Bainbridge on um, on the the recent sort of ALP sort of national conference. Um, and now I think it's um, a bit um, time to kind of play a song. So I was going to play um, Liberation by MC Cash, and um, this was actually um, requested by uh, comrades we know in uh, in India, um, who we met um, what that me and Chloe met while we were in um, in India for a week recently, attending uh, a conference by the All. Um, students uh, or India Students Association. Now, this song is a um, bit of background. This song, this song is about Kashmir, the most densely militarized zone on earth, and the singer raps about the protesters in Kashmir and how the Indian Army have been torturing them for decades. So, yeah, hope, I hope listeners enjoy it. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. For his people, a kosher persecuted cause he rose for his people who chose to be true to the truth of his nation, the right to be free, an end to occupation. Cause basic human rights don't apply to this land, and even birds in a cage sing of God and his plan. But only freedom understands the dreams that we weave, the white cloth for mortar, the almonds there is speed for years that he spent in the darkness of a jail, put on trial for refusing to act like a slave, and grave with his name. An empty grave still awaits No until the end of time Liberation is away This is liberation of a nation right. No more occupation of a nation uh-huh. It's a sacrifice, it's culmination right. Liberation, liberation yeah. This is liberation of a nation right. No more occupation of a nation uh-huh. It's a sacrifice, it's culmination yeah. Liberation, yeah. liberation yeah. And you'll be from the truth if you think that this will last it's an occupation one-on-one this world can see your mask we sure can see our path cause the visions from our past all the pharaohs that we had they could never really last the sacrifices of our people won't be just forgotten in the graveyard of tears we will glorify the fallen and even if they're buried somewhere deep in your jails their dream resonates in our heart and our tales and they will see will stand for long take it as a spade our divided populace will break open the Stage. It's justice for the people, the message of humanity, the fight against the evil, a struggle for equality, the courage and the ultimate sacrifice of life is a man whose principles keep upholding what's right and they empower this nation to strive for the goal, liberation, liberation, God bless us soul. This is liberation of a nation, right. no more occupation of a nation, uh-huh. it's a sacrifice, it's culmination, right. liberation, 
Liberation, yeah. this is liberation of our nation. Right. No more occupation of our nation. No it's a sacrifice of a nation. Yeah. Liberation, yeah. liberation. Yeah. I stole my history, get buried under tyranny. Remember vividly the patterns of finality. I heard your silence when the righteous got the guillotine. I felt the violence when the tyrants thought to kill a dream. So if they ask you why rebellion is necessary, I tell them slavery breeds ignorance, puts fear in your chest, and it kills every sense. Still, it spells poverty on an oppressed populace. This is liberation of a nation. No more occupation of a nation. It's a sacrifice, it's culmination. Liberation, liberation. This is liberation of a nation. No more occupation of a nation. It's a sacrifice, it's culmination. Liberation, liberation. This is liberation of a nation. No more occupation of a nation. It's a sacrifice, it's culmination. Liberation, liberation. This is liberation of a nation. No more occupation of a nation. It's a sacrifice, it's culmination. Liberation, liberation. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Copower gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Copower member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Copower today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. All right, good morning. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And um, we're very happy to be joined by, by Suresh Kumar Ralph, um, who is a, a, an activist and a former president of uh, the Indian Overseas <coughs> Congress Australia Kerala chapter. And so, yeah, we have um, Suresh on to have a bit of a discussion about some of the events that are happening in in the state of Manipur in India. Um, so, good morning, Suresh. Good morning, listeners. Good morning, everyone. Um, to kind of start off, um, since May 4th, um, the Indian government has shut off the internet in Manipur, giving cover to the murders, rapes and arson. And I guess, what is kind of like... The situation. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the situation in, in Manipur right now, especially for people, for our listeners who might not know what is really kind of happening and haven't necessarily been following on the media that much? Yeah, uh, it is still uh, uh, the government uh, has shut down internet in many parts of Manipur. Still, uh, they call it. Uh, it's basically to prevent uh, people posting fake news and fake uh, anti-social uh, postings uh, through the social media. Uh, and um, so that is what the government is doing. Uh, I think whether uh, the Manipur government or the federal government, which is a central government, they use this as a, uh, a means by which uh, they can control democratic freedom and uh, hide uh, issues and keep it under the carpet. Uh, so whether it is in Kashmir uh, or or in Manipur, they use it as a tool to suppress information 
and uh, people from knowing about the reality of uh, the situation in Manipur. Uh, hi, Suresh. It's Sue here. I met you at the rally that uh, for Manipur um, that was held on the weekend. I'm just wa- I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the history of the political situation in Manipur, um, so we can understand the violence. And I, I, for listeners might not know where Manipur is, it's in the far northeast of the country. Um, but you also made some points at the rally that. Um, that you felt that the ethnic violence had been manufactured as a way to sort of justify the taking of um, the tribal Kuki people's land. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the history of the situation, but also about those comments you made at the rally. Yes. Manipur uh, is called uh, a jewel uh, land of India because it is surrounded by uh, nine hills with an oval-shaped valley at the center. Uh, That's why it's called uh, uh, a naturally made jewel. And it was ruled uh, once upon a time by the Mughals, then Burmese, and then the British occupied uh, Manipur in 1891. And they were ruling till 1947 when uh, India achieved independence. Manipur is uh, located in the northeast of uh, uh, India geographically, uh, bordering on the east uh, and southeast uh, international border with uh, uh, Myanmar, which is Burma. And uh, in the north, uh, it is uh, bordering Nagaland, which is another state uh, in the northeast in India. And on the west, Assam. And on the south, uh, Mizoram, southwest, uh, it is bordering with another state of India, Mizoram. Why I said is that uh, it, is, it is surrounded by various ethnic tribal communities and is being influenced by... Uh, the, the way of living, traditions, culture, uh, dance, music, uh, etc., of different ethnic tribal communities surrounding Manipur. So, and Manipur is such a place where uh, there are two major communities, two major communities, which is Meti uh, community and uh, Kuki community. Kukis are generally tribals living in the hilly mountainous uh, areas, uh, which is 89% of Manipur land. And uh, Metis are living in the center of the uh, center, which is the valley, which is around 11% of the area of Manipur. Whereas the power lies with the Metis because they have 40 representatives representing uh, in the Manipur Legislative Assembly, whereas Kukis, who own 89, not own, controls 89% of the area, have only 20 representatives. We call uh, MLAs, Member of Legislative Assembly, representing. So there is an unequal uh, or a disparity between the power structure. And from a population point of view, 57% of the people are in the valley. They are Metis and 43% the tribal cookies. Uh, when you say from a religion point of view, uh, there is Hinduism, there is uh, Christianity, uh, and Islam there overall. Uh, 
but around half of the population, around uh, the, the total population of Manipur is 3 million. It is roughly um, the size of one third of Victoria, <coughs> 3 million people living there, out of which uh, six, uh, 1.6 million are Metis living in the valley, and the rest of the people are in the tribes living on the hilly mountainous uh, area. Recently, in February, uh, currently it is being ruled by the BJP government. Last, uh, in 2017 and 2022, uh, the local state assembly is being controlled and the government is controlled and managed by uh, the national BJP, uh, Bharatiya Janata Party government. Uh, they are in bent upon dividing people and ruling the country or the state. And there are only two national federal government members from Manipur. So both are basically from BJP and BJP allied parties. In February, there was a uh, agitation which uh, commenced there uh, because uh, the Methi community, which is relatively economically better off as compared to cookie community, they wanted to be included in the scheduled tribe uh, community category because on scheduled tribe uh, community category has reservations for employment, education, etc., uh, etc., et 31% reservation. Uh, they demanded they to be included as a part of scheduled tribe, which cookies are already there. Methis wanted to be part of that as well which instigated the cookies to respond, saying that uh, they will be affected by that if more number of people are included in that category. They, the deserving candidates from their community will lose chance of getting education, employment, etc. The, the, the core of all these agitation is unemployment and uh, uh, unemployment and uh, poverty, which is 31% of Manipur lies below the multi-dimensional uh, poverty index. Uh, so the, the core of that uh, uh, issue is sharing of the resources uh, in, in Manipur, and the majority of the areas are underdeveloped because it is hilly areas, and only the valley is relatively uh, better off, relatively better off, uh, but that is mainly controlled by Methi community, uh, there is, in Methi community, it is predominantly Hindus, uh, but there are uh, uh, Christians, Muslims, and uh, Sanamahi tribals, part of Methi community. Similar to that, in Kuki community, you will find uh, predominantly Christians, uh, but they are tribals, influenced by Naga tribals, Miso tribals, uh, and Burmese uh, chins. Uh, so it is a very complicated situation from a uh, uh, from a uh, 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 community point of view. Manipur is very famous for its rich culture, traditions, dance forms, music, scenic landscapes, uh, local cuisines. Uh, it's, it's a very beautiful place. Uh, in February, uh, there was a uh, there was a situation where two. Uh, ladies from Cookie community were paraded naked. And uh, this video surfaced because of the internet shutdown. The video didn't surface till May. Um, so in February, 
uh, onwards, the civil war started there. Nearly 60,000 people were displaced. Uh, more than 5,000 houses torched. Uh, nearly 250 churches from either side uh, torched. Temples burned down. Nearly 200 people died. Dozens raped and killed. And it took 77 days uh, after a Supreme Court the Suomoto action for the Prime Minister to utter, a, utter Manipur's name. Uh, and uh, the opposition parties within India have been trying to uh, make the Prime Minister talk about Manipur and explain what actions have been taken to control violence there. Um, there was a situation where uh, nearly uh, 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 3,000 weapons were looted by from police station by uh, uh, hooligans. Um, and they were, it was, it, it looked like it was a well-planned conflict where 200 young people on motorbikes stealing three to four thousand dollars, uh, three thousand four, three to four thousand weapons from police stations. And the police station, the uh, police, uh, people, which is dominated by Native community were just watching and allowing this to happen. So it is a humanitarian catastrophe there. Uh, a lot of people have died, displaced. The conditions in uh, the, the refugee camps are pretty uh, pathetic. And uh, it took uh, Rahul Gandhi, who is the main opposition leader uh, from in the National Congress, uh, to make a visit to Manipur uh, when the video surfaced, uh, despite protests from the ruling BJP party to go there, visit all those uh, with uh, facing a lot of security threats. And it took him to go there with the team uh, and then Youth Congress helping the refugee camps, helping the people. It must be said that the Indian military uh, really helped the people from all the communities, those who, those who need help. Uh, they were saved a lot of uh, families were saved by the Indian military, uh, which uh, act generally in a, a political manner. Uh, so it is a human catastrophe uh, uh, where there is share of responsibility by the state government as well as uh, the central government uh, uh, ruled by BJP party and the Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Hmm. And I think that gets into kind of like kind of like the kind of next kind of question. I think, um, Suresh, you've given like a very, I think a very detailed sort of overview of, I think, of the, of all the kind of the roots of, of I guess, sort of what, what's happening. And um, I guess I want to kind of hear a bit more about, okay, what has been the role that the BJP slash RSS have played, I guess, in this sort of campaign of kind of dividing communities within Monopole? Yeah, RSS... Uh is Rashtriya Soyam Sevak Sangh, which has been in existence from early 20th century, 1925. Uh, RSS, uh, in, in, in English, it is called uh, more like a national self-help uh, society, uh, RSS, uh, Rashtriya Soyam Sevak Sangh. The idea was to unite Hindus, uh, and their long-term agenda is to uh, create a Hindu Rashtra, uh, 
uh, unlike the current uh, secular socialist uh, sort of a uh, structure we uh, india has uh, in its constitution they wanted to um, predominantly have a hindu rashtra uh that is what rss is but rss was never having power uh, electorally till uh in 2014 the bjp government so bjp is generally a political wing of rss uh so it's fully supported by rss and uh, it uh, bjp gets na- generally 35 to 37% votes uh of uh, indian elections so with that uh, 37% of uh, votes they are controlling ruling the country because the rest uh, 63% are divided on uh, ethnic uh, multilingual lines or different political parties uh, because it is not a two party uh, electoral system there in india it is multi party electoral system in india uh, the states goes uh, on their own way so rss agenda is this called the hindutva agenda to create uh, uh, a society which is predominantly controlled by uh, they are not saying that muslims should not be there christians should not be there but the supremacy will be that of uh, uh, the 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 uh, hindus and that's the sort of rule they wanted but so there is a lot of resistance from the people because generally peace loving indians uh, don't like to be they want to be multicultural um, uh, we all uh, used to live where hindus christians muslims all live together peacefully uh, in this particular case for electoral gains bjp uh, and rss would go to any extent to divide the people of india and electorally gain out of it because that will consolidate that 37 percent votes which they already have and uh, it will get a uh, little more votes by uh bringing up uh, the false nationalistic uh, sort of uh, agenda uh so rss and bjp is very keen on changing the constitution in the process in this particular case there is a corporate nexus as well um, uh without naming any corporate entity uh the, the behind this violence there is an economic uh sort of uh, economic uh, uh sort of agenda by the by uh the corporate uh, guys nexus with the politicians they recently came out in manipur with certain legislations by which uh, uh they they wanted uh, uh the mines uh to be installed uh, they they wanted to create mines in the tribal areas hill areas um they wanted to have uh, uh uh they did some reorganization of districts without even basic consultation adding hill areas to the valley areas uh, they introduced a mine bill allowing private companies uh to enter into or create mines there uh and then allowing forced evictions of the tribals from their land uh they came out with a legislation where oil palm project uh, allowing cultivation uh, allowing private companies again resulting in forced evictions uh, they removed a legislation called afspa which is armed forces special uh, powers act which allowed the military to have some special powers 
they removed that uh, legislation from the valley but they didn't allow that uh, uh, to be removed from the tribal area so a lot of social um, uh, issues uh, uh, were happening there uh, there is an agenda behind that there is uh, tribals are very focused on environmental and health uh, impacts they live on a uh, subsistence farming basis so they are economically poor off so it is a it, it is also a war between rich and poor relatively rich and poor um, and then nexus of politicians with uh, the corporate lobby uh, make things difficult the local uh, chief minister veeran singh uh, he is a uh, meeting as a result uh, he doesn't consult anyone uh, he is undemocratic uh, so there is a social divide between cookies and uh, uh, tribal cookies and uh, uh, relatively better off meetings uh, just one um, unfortunately yeah. we okay. um, i think um Suresh, this has been a very kind of good interview, but we might have to, unfortunately, we might have to cut it short because um, we actually have another interview at 8.10 a.m. Um, yep. So um, I'll give you an opportunity to make any sort of final comments you like to leave our listeners with. But, yeah, we really appreciate the discussion that we've been having. Fortunately, we weren't able to get into all the questions. But, yeah, do you have any, like, final comments that you kind of like to make for our listeners? Uh, I just want to say that I I am affiliated uh, with the Indian National Congress so uh, it is a part of opposition in uh, uh, in India so obviously politically we don't see much eye to eye with uh, uh, the BJP party and we are strictly uh, secular uh, democratic uh, that sort of uh, thing and uh, hopefully uh, relativity is uh, better off now in Manipur and I hope uh, the peace returns to the valley and the tribal areas very soon. Thanks very much, Suresh, and we'll talk to you again sometime. Thank you very much. All right. Um, so we're just having a, 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 good, a very good discussion with Suresh about, um, you know, the ongoing conflict that's happening in Manipur, um, which, uh, which is a state in India. And in fact, one of the most outrageous things is that all reports of actually what's sort of happening there, especially some of the terrible events, especially the persecution of the Kuki community, um, has actually been re- um, repressed by by the government. And um, in the meantime, we might go in, into playing a quick announcement and then we'll go on to the Green Left Activist calendar before our, first in, um, before our final interview. You're listening to Green Left Radio. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world putting direct democracy and right, feminism so into practice wa- on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness and builds Solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. Ness is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855M, and we'll just do, um, for the next three minutes, it's time for the Green Left Actors Calendar, so I'll pass it on to Sue. So we don't have time to go through all of the activist calendar today, um, but um, 
I would like to just advertise that there is going to be a protest at the Glenroy Pro, uh, Glenroy Pro, uh, Post Office this afternoon at 4pm. There's a campaign to stop Australia Post from closing down the Glenroy Pro, Pro, Post Office um, and the, pro, uh, the protest is calling for Australia Post to stop closing down uh, Australia Post-owned uh, post offices um, in busy shopping centres because they're engaged in a campaign to close down uh, 30 post offices in metropolitan areas in Australia, including Melbourne. Um, so that's this afternoon at 4pm in post office place Glenroy. Um, then on Tuesday next week, there is an urgent solidarity protest with the Mapuche Indigenous people of Chile. Um, it'll be at 12 noon outside the Chilean consulate, which is at 390 St Kilda Road, Melbourne. And the reason for this protest is that there are many uh, Mapuche political prisoners on hunger strike in prisons in Chile, and the government in Chile has stepped up attacks on the Mapuche political prisoners. So now they've uh, shifted their hunger strike from a hunger strike where they were drinking water to a dry hunger strike, which is very dangerous. We're in danger of losing some of these Mapuche political prisoners because you can't last very long on a dry hunger strike. Some of these political prisoners have been on hunger strike for 104 days so far. So that is that protest is this coming Tuesday at 12 noon outside the Chilean consulate. Um, so stay in touch. I think some of the other programs on 3CR will be talking more about the reasons why the political prisoners uh, who are Mapuche are on hunger strike. Um, so then on the following day, on Wednesday, in the evening at 6pm at Treads Hall, there'll be a climate justice speaking tour organised by Rising Tide, a climate activist group in Newcastle. And the speakers will include Jeff Sparrow, an academic and Guardian columnist. Um, uh, it will also include Tishiko King, who's a campaign director of Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, as well as Alexis Stewart from Rising Tide in Newcastle. Um, so basically they're mobilising uh, and carrying out this sp- uh, speaking tour to try and mobilise the east coast of Australia to blockade the um, coal port in Newcastle at the end of November. Then the um, I might yep. um, actually wait. We'll, um, we'll just I'll just make the quick announcement that um, there is actually going to be a public forum happening next Thursday, um, organised by Green Left, titled "Genocide and Resistance," and that's going to be happening at 6:30 p.m. at the Multicultural Hub, 506 Elizabeth Street in the city, opposite Victoria Market. And you can check out more details of this event by going on the Green Left website. Um, I'm just a bit conscious that we actually have to get into our next interview, so I'm just going to play a quick few announcements and then we'll get our final uh, interview for the program on now. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion 
and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Hi, Emily. Welcome to Green Left Radio. Good morning, Sue. Thanks uh, for having me. Great. I'm glad you're online. Um, so you're online with uh, myself and Jacob Andrew-Arthur, the co-presenter. So we'll both um, share the questions for you and we'll dive straight in because we don't have long left on the program. Um, so firstly, I wanted to ask you about... Um, or actually maybe first for listeners, um, Emily Sims is from Prosper Australia, which is a research institute which does a lot of research around land, land rent, land banking, vac- vacant dwelling rates and other, other such things. So my first question for Emily is that Many of the um, politicians and the major parties, developers, the media, repeat constantly the mantra that the high cost of housing, whether you're renting or buying, is a result of lack of housing supply. I'm wondering if you could comment about this argument. Is the question of housing supply or housing distribution the cause of the high cost of housing? Oh, thanks for the question, Sue. Yeah, it's a really important one because, you know, we're here that our main business of dwellings. Oh, um. So this is demand and policy intervention that gets to as governments need to... Hey, Emily, sorry to, sorry to interrupt you. Um, yeah. It seems like you're getting some quite poor reception, so you're sort of cutting in and out. Um, is, there, is, there like a, is there like a part? Oh, dear. Can you move to a part um, place where you are right now to, to get better reception, to, to give a bit of a test? Um, is that better? Yeah, um, continue. Yeah. I think that might be a bit um, better. People might not have heard the first part of what you said because you're cutting in and out. Oh, I apologise. Yeah, I'm actually, I live in rural New South Wales and I rely on satellite um, internet for my telephone access. Well, that's so much better now. Like about, that's much better now. Like well, we heard all that. Elon. So you can, yeah. you, can, um, you can continue. So it's definitely gone a lot better. Thank you. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, the supply question is very important because we're told that um, we call it the planning constraint thesis, and it essentially contends that when prices remain high because the supply of dwellings in accessible and desirable locations hasn't kept pace with demand, and this is because there are restrictions on the amount of housing or the density at which new housing can be built that... um, it's due to planning zones um, and other kinds of planning um, restrictions like heritage controls or um, uh, development density limits, and that the policy intervention that we need is to rezone or remove those kinds of planning direct regulations so that um, uh, if we did this, then the market could then supply new dwellings at a rate that would bring 
down or at least restrict growth. And I think it's really important when we're talking about prices of housing to be really clear that housing is quite unique in that um, when we talk about prices, like is worth to buy and own, we're talking not just about um, housing as a consumption good, you know, what, what you would pay to live somewhere, but we're also talking about its attribute as a wealth generating or safety equal um, asset. And house prices to asset pricing, um, you know, uh, dynamics. So, for example, if the interest rates go down or up, this has an influence on house prices. So when we're talking about prices and we're doing an analysis of housing costs and we want to talk about affordability, we tend to focus on the rents in the private market um, because that is a much better um, metric or measure of whether or not there is enough housing um, and whether or not people can access housing uh, um, in an affordable way. Well, one of the other things, Emily, is I know that Prosper did uh, a piece of work um, where you studied the great COVID experiment where the population went down in Australia because of COVID, um, and but the com- uh, construction companies were still um, producing... Uh, dwellings or building dwellings at a quite a rapid rate, and I understand the the rents went down a bit around ten percent for a period of time, but really um, they didn 't stay down. Do you want to sort of comment about that research yeah thanks sue. Um, we did do a cheeky bit of research during um, the pandemic well what not during but after um, so <laughs> We've released this report called Melbourne's Pandemic Rental Dynamics, um, a, an unnatural experiment in housing supply. So <laughs> our contention here is that if we think about the population shock that Melbourne experienced in 2021 and 2022, when we lost you know, 80,000 um, net population in 2021, if we think about that in terms of like a massive building boom, you know. Imagine if all things were held equal and we just dropped in another 100,000 dwellings. What would that do to prices? So with this kind of cheeky little setup, we had a look at what happened to rents. And I think it's important to understand before the pandemic what kind of rental and supply dynamics existed in Melbourne. So Melbourne is one of the fastest growing cities in the developed world developed world um we grow we were growing on average 10,000 additional residents per year so this is like one of the highest rates of growth in the oecd what's quite astounding is that despite the fact that we were adding so many new people per year construction in melbourne pretty much kept up so we found that in the three years before the pandemic melbourne actually added one new house for every new two new residents and we built more than enough in the decade prior to maintain the household formation rates at about 2.6 people per dwelling. Um, and the other thing that's really interesting about that is that how finely tuned an equilibrium demand and supply actually um, held. So, for example, you know, we'd get a bit more excess 
population and the rents would go up a little bit and then construction would kick up and basically by the time that uh, at the beginning of the pandemic in 2019, rent growth was flat and the, you know, the equilibrium between new population and the cumulative rate of construction, um, they were, you know, really, really close together. Um, so then we have this population shock and it's actually the first time that Melbourne has lost population since the Great Depression. We saw 80,000 people sort of net population outflows and at the same time, construction wasn't really locked down. So the construction industry um, really did continue to um, pump out houses at, at the very high rate that it already had been. So combined with the population outflow and the ongoing construction, we were able to say that there was about a 5%, 6% imbalance between supply and demand. So essentially there was an, enough empty... Well, so not, when, when we talk about excess supply, we're not talking about empty houses. We're just sort of talking about um, how much extra space there potentially was and we calculated that to be about enough to house 260,000 people. So that's a huge, that's a huge shock um, on the demand side. So the impact of all of this was, you know, we've called it a virtual building boom, was that average rents went down about 12%, but they didn't stay down. They, they, were, they were, in fact, growing again within 12 months. Um, so... 12 months, rents were back to pre-pandemic levels, despite the fact that we built more houses and there were still less people. And the real question is, well, why? And I think the, 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 the it's difficult to answer those questions on the basis of our um, data, but we did have a bit of a uh, wander in the speculative kind of um, weeds so one thing, the most important thing to understand is that, you know, people aren't static, markets adapt, we, we adapt. There is this first order, first round um, shock, you know, the, the demand shock, and then there is the second round, third round um, responses. And what we kind of talk about are some or sort of three major things. So firstly, there's this idea there was a preference shift. You know, people wanted to live in more housing. You know, they wanted to consume more space um, because of the way that we were locked in and the changes to our work life. You know, we were all living at home and I know that, um, you know, living in a share house with five other people when you weren't allowed to leave was a pretty um, gnarly experience for many people. Um, so that preference shift was larger, more space, um, more private space. And then the other thing, though, is that there, as prices fall down, as rents come down, well, then you can afford to consume more. So induced consumption um, or induced demand due to the falling cost of um, homes is another adaptive response that is in the mix. Um, and one of the other adaptive responses that we saw was an increase in vacancies. 
So Speculative Vacancies is a report that Prospera has put out for 10 years. Um, and what we saw during the pandemic um, is that 35,000 more dwellings than usual were left. So that's like a 50% increase on what we'd seen in 2019 in terms of our um, dwellings that are left vacant over a 12-month period as measured by their water water usage. So those three kind of like main adaptive responses, withholding of stock by landlords or, you know, vacancies, um, people changing their preferences and wanting more space, and then the price falls actually inducing us to be able to afford more space, really gobbled up all of that excess supply rapidly, more than 12 months. So the big point um, that we were trying to make or what we kind of came to with this report is that when it comes to these conversations about the supply and what supply can do for housing affordability, if the price impact of, you know, the equivalent of two to three years' worth of construction being dropped in overnight is 12% decline in prices that only last a year, and that's kind of a normal, you know, functioning or very normal functioning of the private housing market, then our focus for those people who are left out in the cold and unable to access housing um, should probably not be on the supply side, but really we ought to focus our attention on the inequality problem. Because, you know, markets don't allocate housing on the basis of need. They allocate housing on the basis of, you know, purchasing power. Um, So, you know, if so many... If I'm in a position as an income earner to rent a bigger place, then I'm going to do that. But that doesn't necessarily help somebody who is struggling to be able to afford rents in the private market. Emily, we're just about two minutes away from the end of the program. Um, It would be great to get you back onto the program at a future stage because we really just started to get into all of the issues and I've got lots of questions I'd love to ask you. But I think think you have uh, demonstrated with what uh, the questions you've answered so far that, um, you know, some of the issues uh, where the housing, you know, just expanding housing supply isn't by itself the answer uh, and uh, we oh, yeah. really need public housing but we've got we have to wrap up the program so that the next program can take over from us so thank you very much Emily um, and I know you haven't really fully got into all of the discussion yet but um, that's really as far as we can go on the show today without um, without trimming the next program that's about to come on well, if your reader, uh, listeners are interested in any of the issues and some of the research that we've done, they can download all of those reports at prosper.org.au. Um, that one's the Pandemic Rental Dynamics Report. There's a bunch of stuff on supply um, and housing and planning to regulation and affordability. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, Emily. Bye now. Bye. All right. Um, so um, we'll just... Um, um,
um, talking to Emily Sims from um, Prosper Australia, who's actually kind of who have actually been doing a lot of kind of useful kind of research on the housing crisis, and you can actually sort of read about their research on on their website and on if you search up Prosper kind of Australia. Now we're getting into um, we've actually had such a packed program we've actually had to kind of cut two of our major interviews a bit short. We haven't actually been able to go into sort of all the detail that we would have. Um, liked, but actually, we're going to be covering. Um, Green Left Radio will continue to have just um, be to continue to have updates on what's happening in Manipur, and also we'll also continue to have um, discussions on the housing crisis because it's ultimately one of the most I think big kind of political issues that is actually happening in Australia right now. But first, um, but lastly, I guess I'd like to. Thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. And if you support, and also want to make a bit of a plug, if you support the work that we're doing and, you know, hearing directly from activists and, and putting forward the kind of perspectives that you don't hear in the corporate sort of media, but also making the radical kind of case for system change, um, for kind of world kind of beyond capitalism. If you support that, uh, those ideas, you can become a supporter of Green Left by going on greenleft.org.au forward slash support. Um, but yeah, um, see, so you have any final last thing you want to say? Just stay in touch, follow Green Left Weekly, and um, also support 3CR. All right, and thank you, listeners, and um, stay tuned for Left After Breakfast. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise you workers from the slumbers, arise you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap